This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. And as you just heard me talking about, this is going to be the birth of Jesus that we're reading about. So let's read these first seven verses. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And that's where we're going to stop today. I mean, it's not where we're going to stop. That's where we're going to stop reading. We're going to talk about this for a while, all right? So the birth of Jesus happens on December 25th, right? No, not really. We don't know. No one really knows when Jesus was actually born. The Bible says that there were shepherds out in the fields, which meant that it probably was not in December. Um, so it's probably closer to sometime in the spring when we celebrate Easter. But Christians in that day, in the early days following Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, they didn't know for sure when, you know, what time, what the actual day was. But here's what they did. There was a holiday that was already taking place in the pagan world, in the Roman world in that day. And since they didn't know when Jesus' birthday was and they wanted to celebrate it, and they already had this holiday called Saturnalia. It was a pagan feast and festival. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's, we don't really have anything to compare to it today. I guess it would be like Super Bowl Sunday for a lot of us. You know, you, 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 the dip is made. You know, if, you, if you've really enjoyed, you know, football, I guess. People, you know, people are right, you know, they kind of want to gather and party together, and, and you know, you got, you, the, the, everyone sort of has, the, everyone had the day off on that day, I mean, it's Sunday here, but decorations were already up, cookies were already made, and so Christians in that day said, hey, you know what, let's just make that Jesus' birthday. Let's just go ahead and celebrate, let's, 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 let's take over this pagan holiday, and we'll turn it into what we know as Christmas, Christ's birth, and that's what we've been celebrating ever since. That's why we celebrate it this time of year ever since. It's a really raw and rough quick explanation. But this is, I say that because this is where we're going today. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2 in a way that I think fits all of the scriptures that we talk about, that we look at. Any, any scripture that you read, we should really take some time to consider all of the things that we're going to do today and including next week. I'm not going to finish this today. I know I won't. And so what I mean by that is this. Organizationally, as you read the scripture, and as we read the scripture today, the way we're going to look at it is like this. We're going to start with that which is historical, meaning what did God do and what did God say? Just very factual what happened, the history of it. And then we're going to look theological. So what does it mean? 
This is what God did. This is what God said. This is what happened. What does it mean? What does, you know, what, what can we see? How can we see God through this? How can we know God better through this? That's what theology is, trying to get to know what God is doing, who he is. And then biographically, how does this change us? How does this change me? What does this say to me? And then finally, the last thing that we'll look at is, is something we'll call doxologically, which is, which is doxology worship. How do we worship in result of this? Because that's what scripture does. That's what studying the Bible does, is it should lead our hearts to want to respond in worship. And so how do we worship? Who do we worship? Why do we worship in light of the historical, what God says and does, and the theological, what that all means, and the biographical, how that changes us? So let's, let's, that's our overlay. Let's pray and ask for help, all right? Holy Spirit, we ask for your help right now. I thank you for the opportunity to teach as always. And God, I, I confess that I actually really love to teach the, theological principles. I love this. It's, 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 it's fun. And so I'm really grateful that I get a chance to, to, to speak today, to teach today. And I hope that, that I won't get in the way. I pray that you'll be able um, to serve the people here well through me, without me having a, a sense of pride in sharing this information today. And I, hope that you, I hope that you would help those who are here that are listening online, that are privileged enough to be participating to study, you know, and studying here together in this word that we're reading today. I pray that in every way, Lord, that they would be the church, regardless of where they are. I pray that they would learn and live in light of what we discover in your word today. So that this would be for us not just some information that we get and put into our heads and mark down in our notebooks, but that it would be transformation for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we get into the story of Jesus' birth, I just want to remind you again, sort of like I do every week, that there are two threads that are woven together throughout the whole Bible. And that is promise and fulfillment. Promise and fulfillment. So much of the Old Testament it would simply fit under the category of promise. These are promises and prophecies that have been made. And then the New Testament is a recording of the fulfillment of a whole series of promises that are also called prophecies, by the way, and that were given hundreds, sometimes thousands of years in advance. What that means is God, who is sovereign and, and foreknowing over everything, over the future, he tells us in exact detail what his plan is for human history and what his plan is for the coming of the Savior of the world, coming of Jesus into human history. And, and you know, we could invest actually a several weeks long series into all the promises, all the prophecies uh, that, that God made that, came, that became fulfilled in the New Testament. Those, those promises that God makes in the Old Testament hundreds of years earlier. But I just want to share with you two as, as a backdrop for what we're studying in Luke chapter 2 because they're very applicable to Luke chapter 2. And that first one is Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. This was written roughly 700 years before Jesus was born. God says through the prophet Isaiah, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign... Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So God says the answer to the human sin problem is Emmanuel. It's a title, a designation that means, well, what? You know what it means. We just sang about it. It's the second song we sang today. The title of the second song is what Emmanuel means. 
God is with us. God with us. So God is coming into human history. And God is coming to visit this planet that he created to be with the people that he created. And how will we know that God has come? How will we know? I mean, we know to look for him because the prophecies and the promises tell us to look for him. But how will we know that God has come to be with us? Well, the answer, according to Isaiah, is look for a virgin mother. There's a virgin who will give birth to a son. Well, the second prophecy I want to share with you is in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. One of the smaller prophets. They called Micah a minor prophet. He wasn't shorter or smaller in stature. He just didn't write as many words. This is about 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And this is what it says. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. And if you look in the original Hebrew language, the literal translation for those, that last word, ancient days, is from eternity, whose origin is from old, from eternity, it says. So from these two, I mean, from just these are two prophecies, and then, of course, many other promises that are made. I said we could take an entire series and look at all the prophecies, these promises that were made hundreds of years before, and then how the fulfillment of them were, were all, you can find them in Jesus. The expectation, the anticipation was a Savior is coming. There is one who is coming who is going to deliver us. He's going to redeem us. He's going to be our hero. He will be God among us. That's how we'll know. It'll be God among us. He'll be born of a virgin as a boy, a son, and he'll be born in this little town with only dozens or maybe a hundred or so people, this town called Bethlehem. It's not even big enough to be considered part of the province of Judah, but it's, it's a town that, is, it is, it, that God chose and everyone was anticipating and awaiting this miraculous visitation from God. And they got these very specific prophecies of what to look for. And that is all fulfilled here in what we read in Luke chapter 2 in the birth of Jesus. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, Luke is a really well-educated and articulate man. He is an intelligent man. And as we've examined, he was, funded by, he was funded by this man named Theophilus, a generous donor, to do a historical examination, a historical investigation of the person and the work and the teaching of Jesus. And so he records for us in his gospel that we're studying the life events, the works of Jesus. And, and he does that through going to the eyewitness testimony, you know, the eyewitnesses, those who were with him, those who were actually present for certain events. And he sits down and he talks with them. It means he would have probably interviewed Mary and he would have interviewed others who were present and who grew up with the young Jesus probably. And he tells us about the birth of Jesus here. He tells us about things that were happening around the birth of Jesus. And there, are, and there are some characters, some people that he introduces to us, some people in history that you learn about in history class that Luke is sure to include and introduce to us. These were people who were in office during this time. These are people that you could look up regardless of what year it is, regardless if it's 2,000 years from now or it's today or tomorrow. Luke is like, I want to make sure I get all these historical facts written down. I believe showing us that this event is rooted in historical fact. It is historically rooted fact, all of these issues surrounding Jesus. 
And so the first person he introduces to us is Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar. So as you know from world history class, he was a real historical figure. Luke says that Jesus was born when Caesar Augustus was ruling. So let, let's talk a little bit about this very significant political leader. Caesar Augustus ruled over the Roman Empire, one of the most prominent, long-standing, far-reaching empires in the history of the world. In fact, they believe that the Romans ruled the entire world. That's why it says that, that, that uh, Caesar Augustus had decreed that a census should be taken throughout the whole world and because they believed that that was pretty much what the world was. So this man was an adoptive son of Julius Caesar. Ever heard of him? Right, we learned Julius Caesar, one of them at least. There were lots of people named Julius Caesar, but but you know we probably reenacted his play in literature class. You know, I, in Ms. McCoy's class, I got to be Julius Caesar. Actually, I was Brutus. I, for, I can't believe I forgot that he's Brutus. But Julius Caesar was actually his grand uncle, and he adopted. Caesar Augustus in order to bestow upon him all of the political capacity to succeed him as ruler. So his title, Augustus, actually means the majestic or highly revered. And Caesar Augustus was. In fact, during his rise to power, he was a little bit ruthless. But as he assumed power, once he got into power, he was actually quite benevolent. He was a fairly gracious ruler uh, compared to the others in his day, far more so than any of the ones that you might meet, you know, have met previously in the, in the story, like you know, King Herod that we met who ruled over the, the Jews in that day, in that, at that time. He was a maniacal man you know, throughout the totality of his life. You have a lot of very poor leaders. Augustus was actually considered a pretty good leader. He wasn't a godly man, don't mistake that. He didn't love the God of the Bible. In that day, there was no separation of church and state as there is in our day. And so to be a true Roman, you would actually worship the emperor. That's, that would be something that you, would, you were, you were uh, commanded to do. You would worship the emperor as the embodiment of all that it meant to be among his people. And so Caesar Augustus didn't actually like that idea. He kind of rejected that receiving worship as God because he found that it wasn't politically expedient for him, you know, according to some of his predecessors. It actually didn't, it didn't work out well for some of his predecessors. And so rather than to continue to have people worship him as God, he accepted this title of highest priest. And so he made himself sort of the senior religious leader of over everyone in that day, which meant that he could open up temples and he could sanction religions and he encouraged the worship of the then deceased Julius Caesar, his adopted father. So he's not a godly man, but he's a better ruler than many. Well, working under him was a man called Quirinius. He's a man who works under Caesar Augustus. And the way their political system is ordered is, is very different than ours. But to, to, for some comparison, if you, to think about it, think of, think of it like this. Caesar Augustus is like the president, and Quirinius would be like a cabinet member. And so he is enforcing, Quirinius would enforce and execute the various policies and the decisions that were made by the senior leader. And one of the things that Luke tells us is that a census was to be taken. Well, a census was not something that was particularly righteous in terms of their motivation for taking it in that day. It's actually only taken for two reasons uh, by the emperor. One is for wealth, and the second is for power. What I mean by that is you find out exactly how many citizens you have, 
if you know exactly how many citizens you have, you, know, you can make sure that you tax every single one of them and get as much money as you can possibly get. And the second reason was you wanted to find out how many adult males you had in the land. That way you know how many soldiers you have in the ready to defend your kingdom you know, as, as soon as possible. And so you got an idea of that. That's why censuses were taken. So this census is generally speaking politically and financially motivated. And that's what's going on with, with the ruler, Caesar Augustus, and then Quirinius, his right-hand man, who's going to be taking up, who's, you know, who's, who's, in, who's in charge of making sure that this order is, is taken out. So then Luke introduces us to two other people, Joseph and Mary. And these people are completely antithetical to Caesar and Quirinius. We already studied Joseph and Mary. We know that they're rural, not urban. They're poor, not rich. They're not powerful. They're powerless, in fact. They are worshipers of God. We see that in them. They're not being worshipped as gods. I mean, in every way, they are antithetical to the first two characters that Luke introduces us to. So Joseph and Mary, as we've examined, were likely really young, likely teenagers. Think junior high, high school age kids. We would call them kids today. They'd call men and women in that day. But they lived in a small rural town, only a dozen or so, maybe you know, dozens, not a dozen, dozens or hundreds of people you know, called Nazareth, not thousands of people. Joseph is a man who works as a carpenter, very common job, very, you know, a laborer. He'd probably have calluses on his hands from swinging a hammer a lot, working an honest job, hoping to marry the girl of his dreams. He marries a simple little peasant girl named Mary, but God had showed up through the angel Gabriel and had announced to both of them beforehand, hey, you know what, Mary, you've been favored by God. The prophecy of Isaiah 7:14 that there would be a virgin who would give birth, and that's how you would know God has come to be with his people. The Holy Spirit will allow you, a virgin, to conceive by a miracle. And she was despised because of that. Because many couldn't believe that it was actually happening. Many thought that she had been, that she had made this, this, uh, this story up that she had been unfaithful. They called Joseph a fool and an imbecile for staying with her, and they mocked him as well. But nevertheless, they loved each other. They stuck with it. They trusted in God. They loved God. They worshiped and served God, and they were accepting of God's call in their life regardless of how difficult their circumstance was. And so she's pregnant, and she's on this journey. She's, they've not yet consummated their marriage. The Bible says that she remained a virgin until Jesus was born. So, and then she went on, of course, to have other sons and daughters, and they had a normal family. But it came to pass, Luke says, we'll have to sing that song next week, won't we? I'm just going to introduce a different, different uh, Andrew Peterson song every week. But it came to pass that a census was to be taken. A census requires then that they would have to travel to the town of their birth. So here's, think about those prophecies, okay? Now Mary's husband, Joseph, is of the family line of David. In the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Samuel, we read that David grew up around Bethlehem. He tended sheep around Bethlehem before he became king. His family settled around Bethlehem, and they ultimately would have their family reunions in Bethlehem. And so being a descendant of Bethlehem, when the census is taken and everyone's forced to go to their hometown to register by kin, it's a bit of a family reunion. And the problem is, depending on how you journey from Nazareth, where Mary and Joseph reside at the time, to Bethlehem, where they're supposed to go and travel in obedience to the government, the journey is about 100 miles. 
Well, Mary, one translation, one of the Gospels says, Mary is great with child. What does that mean? <laughs> She's about to pop, right? Yeah, very pregnant, right? I mean, I don't even know how it's possible. You're either pregnant or you're not, but she's, she's ready to deliver this child, right? To be delivered of this child. Well, she's in that ninth month. She's full term. And I'm guessing, just guess, I, I, I can't never claim to speak by experience in this, but for any of you women that have been at this point, ready to give birth, I'm guessing the last thing you might want is a 100-mile walk across the wilderness, <laughs> maybe on the back of a donkey for some of it, right? With the possibility of giving birth on the way, along the side of the road, with no doctor, no medical care, just out there on your own. But that's what happened. That's the story. It's a terrifying prospect. But God, in his providential sovereignty, needs to get this couple from Nazareth to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy and the promise of Scripture that he would be born in Bethlehem. Look at all the things that, that are taking place here. Look at all the coincidences that are taking place. So they make their journey. And they don't give birth along the way. That's amazing right there. Right? despite all those bumps in the road. So they actually arrive in Bethlehem. And lo and behold, while they're in Bethlehem, Luke says, Mary gives birth to Jesus. The whole city is filled with people, as big as the city might be, because all the people come back to their hometown. So it would be really crowded. It was so crowded, there were no room for them. There was no room for them in the inn, probably the only inn in Bethlehem, for them to, to be able to, uh, to, to lay down, to be able to go in and have a comfortable place to give birth, and so we know the story. They don't rent a room. The, the, the innkeeper provides for them a manger, which would have been down in probably a cave. Uh, you know, that's a lot, of their, a lot of their stables were in caved areas, and Jesus was, after he was born, he was placed in a, uh, in, in, wrapped in swaddling cloth, Luke says, and then placed, you know, in a, a, a there was no bassinet, so he's placed in a feeding trough. So you think about this. He's ruling as God in his first throne among the animals. Very humble in every sense of the word. In that day, as I mentioned, there was common for the, the stables to be in caves. And uh, we don't know for certain, but shortly after Jesus was born, the locals in Bethlehem would, would flock to, toward one spot where it was reported that Jesus had been born to one of those caves. And it happened so much that they were they're fairly certain that they know where it is. So just a quick aside. In the days when Christianity was legalized over, um, by uh, Rome, Roman Emperor um, Constantine, his mom, his mother, oversaw the construction of a church building at the site where Jesus was born, the Church of the Nativity. And today there's still a church that meets there, and they've actually been meeting there for over a millennium and a half. And it's a really amazing thing. This is it, the Church of the Nativity. It's the, the outside of it. Can you see it? Turn that front light off, if you would. See, I knew I wanted this light off for a reason. Thank you, light person. Yeah. It's a little better. But you can see that it's the Church of the Nativity. Um, and, it's, and it's called that because they, they, they built that over top of what would have been um, the, um, uh, the, the birthplace of Jesus. And there's still a church. The churches meet there today of all different denominations, Catholic, Protestant. It's a, it's, a, it's a pretty amazing thing. And here's another amazing story about this. 
So this is around year 300 or 400, in between there sometime. This, that long, this building has, you know, or some, some structure, or some form of that building has, has remained there. At one point, it became damaged in a larger one. They just keep building new ones over top of it. They just keep renovating it in that way. And one curious thing about history is that at one point, Persians came in and they destroyed all the Christian churches in that region. But when they got to this particular church building that was built over the alleged birthplace of Jesus, they saw these markings and drawings out in front of what looked like was probably the wise men. And they thought, oh, this must be a pagan temple because the pagan temples all had these kinds of hieroglyphics on them. They're like, this is a pagan temple. We won't destroy this one. And so it remains to this day. It made it through that. And so that first photo there is what it sort of looks like. You can look these up. Actually, I'll post these on our so on uh, Facebook this week so you can see them. And then if you go on the inside, this is what the inside of it looks like today. This is um, on Smithsonian's website. You can see uh, that it's just absolutely beautiful. And as I mentioned, there were lots of caves underneath. Well, today they've turned those caves into chapels. And this is an example of a chapel. You can see a man there um, sitting and praying. This is actually someone who's visited there today in modern times. And then one of those caves, they have set aside and they put a star on the floor that they believe this is the, this, this is the place where Jesus was born. So you could travel over there to Bethlehem today and go and stand in front of that place and be standing in very likely the place where Jesus was laid, where they had, where Mary and Joseph delivered that child. And so God is at work in this story. Those are the characters. Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, Joseph and Mary, and Jesus Christ. And behind all of that is God at work. God is behind it all. And what it reveals to us is his providence and his sovereignty. What I mean by that is his sovereignty is that God rules over all nations, all kings, all kingdoms, all times, all places. That God is above all, that he is Lord. Now Caesar wants more money and more soldiers. God wants scripture fulfilled. So those two things work together. Caesar makes a decision out of greed and pride, and then God uses it for the fulfillment of prophecy. This does not mean that God does evil or is evil, but his providence means that not only is he sovereign over everyone and everything, but that he's good and that means he is working out everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, as Paul says in Romans, and that God could take what is even evil and use that for good, that he takes it and he turns it for good. That's what Joseph says. What is intended for evil is often used for good in the saving of many lives. Joseph says that's what God is going to do through this son that is born. That's our God. He takes bad things and he does good things with them because he's altogether good. Regardless of the circumstance, God takes the bad circumstance and he uses it for good. Do you believe that? Amen. Yeah. So behind all of this, God is working. And out of that... The virgin would give birth to Emmanuel, which means God with us, in Bethlehem, that little town. So in reflecting back, Paul reflects back on Luke chapter 2, and in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul, the apostle, writes this. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I love that, in the fullness of time, like at just the right time. God in his providential sovereignty worked out everything so that prophecy would be fulfilled. That the son, Emmanuel, God with us, would be born of the virgin in Bethlehem. As his mother and father had obeyed the governmental decree to go down and register in their hometown. And that all of this happens, Paul says, in the fullness of time. When there's a Pax Romana, which, is a, which means Roman peace, it's a time when there's good things happening in the Roman world. Highways are being built, and they are connecting nations, and there's a common language and information, and people can travel widely and speak to just about anyone in the known world at that time. And what this means, then the fullness of time, is that Jesus is born at the time when the news of him can spread very quickly, unlike any other time in history. Now, that's the historical truth. Christianity is rooted in the person and the work of Jesus and in historical facts. These are historical facts. And they're summarized and, and, and recounted even by those who aren't Christians, you know, but faithful historians. And, and you know, my guess is that, that you know, most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with these historical facts. I mean, we, if nothing else, every Christmas you watch the Peanuts cartoon and you hear Linus do his thing, right? And then all of a sudden these words make, you're like, oh, I've heard that before. I, I know this, right? We've got nativity scenes in our house. We know Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the baby and the manger and the animals and all that. Well, those are historical facts, and that's, that's really important, but we can't stop there. Because they're not most these historical facts are not most beneficial to us unless we proceed from the historical to the theological. What do they mean? Like, what is God, what is God doing in this? What is God accomplishing? What is he achieving through the birth of Jesus? What, why did Jesus come? Those are the theological questions that interpret these historical facts. And, and, and I, and I want to... I wanna, I want to talk about the theology of this just a little bit, and this is where we're going to, this will be the, the second half of today's message, and then we'll, we'll do the, the, not the last two things, the last two uh, points next week. But here's a word for you. Incarnation. It's a Latin word that means in flesh, in the flesh. So again, for the sake of time today, we'll just unpack the meaning of this. Incarnation. And then we'll make it a to be continued. Sermon. We'll pick up the biographical and the doxological response to this event next week. Well, Larry King, know him? Larry King, CNN. I think he's retired now. He's like 87 years old now, I believe. Is he still doing stuff? Is he still? Info. That's amazing. Well, Larry King said something that was really that was very true one time. He got something right. <laughs> Someone once asked him, Larry, if you could interview anyone in the history of the world, who would it be? And his answer, Jesus Christ. Anybody remember that? And then they, they followed that question up. They said, well, if you could ask Jesus one question, what would that question be? And Larry said this, and I quote, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. He's right. The answer to that question defines history. I want to talk about Jesus, I want to talk to Jesus, and I want to know, Jesus, was your mom really a virgin? Because if that's true, it changes everything for me. And he's right. 
This is why this is, this is so vitally important to understand how the truth of this. Because if it is true, that means he, Jesus, is unlike anyone and everyone who has ever lived or who ever will live. That's what incarnation means. God in flesh. It's the Christian doctrine that God who is spirit, God who we can't see, God took upon himself human flesh and he came to this world as a human being and we knew him as Jesus Christ. Historically, we can know him as the man, Jesus Christ. But he wasn't just man. John tells us in John's gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 1, he explains this very well. In verse 1, and if you skip down to verse 14, which I'll do, John says, in the beginning was the word, and that's the, the word. So the word, he's using the word to describe the second member of the Trinity, the Son. God the Father, God the Son, God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word, he says in verse 14, became flesh and lived among us. That's what it says if you jump down to verse 14. So John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That's the way that book begins. And then verse 14, he says, the Word, so the one who is essentially face-to-face -face with God the Father in all eternity. He was God. He was with God. He was, the crea he was creator God. He was there in the beginning where Genesis says all was made. The one who was made the second member of the Trinity, the Son, face-to-face -face with the Father, existing eternally as God, he became flesh. He became man, Jesus Christ. That's what incarnation means. The second member of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, entered into the history, into all into history as in time and space, in a particular time, in particular space, the Creator entered his creation. God, who was spiritual, took upon himself human flesh, became a human being, entered into life on earth, like you know, among us. And that's what it means to call himself Emmanuel, God with us. So in saying that, like when you say that to someone, though, it raises a lot of questions. And maybe even raise questions, you know, in your mind here today. It may raise questions in your mind for the rest of your life. I get it. And some of those questions are really, really common. And so I want to deal with a few of those, a handful of those questions today. There actually be seven in all. And I'm going, to end, I'm going to give you a very quick, brief summary of these questions. All right? And these are about, you know, incarnation or, you know, in general, particularly the incarnation of Christ. And that is this. Number one question is this. Or one, one of the questions is this. Some people will ask, well, did Jesus, did a person, in Jesus, did a person become God? Like, is that, is that what happened? Like, was, was Jesus born and then God made him God, the Son of God? It's a common question because people try to figure out how this happens. And the answer to that question is no. There's a difference between a person becoming God and God becoming a, a human being. In fact, there's a great difference. Because the first lie that we're told in the book of Genesis, way back in Genesis 3, was that Satan came to Adam and Eve and he told them, you could be God. You could be like God. And so any religion, think about this, any religion that teaches you that you can be God, like for example, Mormonism actually teaches that. For example, Hinduism and many Eastern religions say that through karma and cosmic progress, you can pay off your karmic debt and you know, then you're free to, you know, you, then you can start becoming one with the divine, which is just another way of saying that you can become one with that which is divine. You're in effect divine, you're godlike. 
The same thing happened, you know, if we, if we bring it to, you know, even more modern spirituality and, you know, uh, I would call it Oprah religion because she has said this before, that there's essentially a, a spark of divinity within each one of us. She writes books about this. So they don't believe in a personal God with a name. They believe in, you know, what is, it's, it's pantheism or panantheism. And that, and that is that all of creation is sort of infused and endowed with this divine cosmic force. And that we don't go out to find God. Like we don't go, we don't find God outside of ourselves. We, the way to find God and connect with God is to go within yourself. And so through prayer and yoga and meditation and centering, we can connect with the divinity within us. And so we can, you know, we can connect with this cosmic power that's within us, this divine consciousness, they call it. It's another way of saying that you could be godlike or divine. That's not what the Bible's teaching at all. That's not what the Bible teaches. There's really only two ways that everyone answers the question, how do we connect with God? Everyone else's way and the Bible's way. Those are the only two ways that we answer that question, how do you connect with God? Everyone else's way is that the distance between us and God, there's a distance caused by sin, we know, there's a gap, but that gap is closed by us ascending toward God. How do we do that? Well, through morality, through reincarnation, some religions say, through just doing good things, right? You ever hear somebody say, surely he's good enough to get to heaven? That's not, that's not the requirement. That's not, that, that misses the boat completely. I'm sorry to tell you that, that's just not the requirement. Good works are not paying off your karmic debt, trying harder, doing better. All that is is a pride as we rise up to God. We're becoming closer to God, more like God through our own effort. But Christianity, the Bible, is about God coming down to be with us. That's what Christmas is. We don't go to God. God comes to be with us. He comes down to us. It's not about pride. It's about humility. It's not about what we do. It's about what he does. It's, a, it's not about the favor that we merit through the things that we, that we accomplish in this life. It's about the grace that God gives undeservedly. The whole doctrine of incarnation is not that a person became God to show us how we can be godlike. That's what a lot of people think Jesus is. He's just a really good person that became like God to show us how we can be godlike. That's not what an incarnation means. It's how God became a person and he, because he loves us and he wanted to come and be with us. So perhaps another question that we might have is this. Well, did Jesus come into existence at his birth? Like, did he not exist before his birth? Some religions do teach that. I mean, this is actually a teaching of the Jehovah's Witness uh, religion. They'll say that Jesus is not eternally God, that he's a created being who came into existence at a certain point in time. Well, the problem is if we believe the Bible, we've already read in Micah chapter 5, verse 2 earlier today, that Jesus' origins, his origins would have been from when? Ancient times or literally eternity past from all eternity. Modern theologians like uh, Don Carson have done a lot of work on this particular doctrine, and they, and they summarize it by saying, you know, this is calling Jesus eternal, eternal. When it says John, you know, when John 1, when John says in John 1, in the beginning was the word, it's actually echoing Genesis 1, verse 1, that first day of creation, when it's saying before creation, Jesus was there with God as eternal God. In the beginning, John says, in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis says, in the beginning. 
And so, no, Jesus didn't come into existence at birth. But here's what happened. The second member of the Trinity entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ. That's what happened at his birth. There was not the creation of Jesus, but the entering of Jesus into human history as a man. So the Son of God became the man, Jesus Christ. Number three, is incarnation borrowed from pagans? You ever hear that one? The idea of a, of a savior, of a, of a virgin birth or incarnate, you know, God becoming, coming to, to human history. So I, I like, since we have so many college students who have connected with our ministry and participate in our ministry, both in person and online, I'm really, I, we're blessed by the college students that come, so thank you. But because we have so many college students who connect, I always like to try to show some contrasting teachings that you may run into whenever you take religion courses in universities. And this is one of them. This is one of the common things that you might run into. If you've ever taken a religion course in college, first of all, I apologize for all the confusion you probably have experienced. <laughs> Unless you're faithful to compare everything that, you have, that was opined with the scripture, with what's actually said in the scripture. But one of the things that you probably have heard is that Christianity borrows its ideology of things like the virgin birth from pagan mythology. That's a very common thing that's told to us about Christianity. So let's unpack this accusation for a second. It's not true, in part because scripture and its teachings of the virgin birth actually predate pagan mythology, like Greek mythology, for example. You can actually read in some Greek mythology and some Hindu mythology some concepts that, um, you know, that one of the gods or goddesses came down and visited Earth. I mean, very, very similar in concept. But usually it's speaking more of something like an avatar, which is actually not an incarnation at all. It's a weird, it's very technical. But let me just say this. This is why I don't believe in any of this. It's because scripture predates any of those mythologies. The very first suggestion of any virgin birth of Jesus is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned against God, and God comes and he talks to them about the consequences of sin. And he promises the coming of Jesus as Savior. And he says that Jesus, this, this, this Savior, will be born of a woman, and there's no mention of a father. That's significant. And the reason it's significant is because as you read Genesis forward from there, Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament is a patriarchal book, which means it's a male lineage explanation of things. It's, it's, a, it's a tracing of family histories through the male line. It's just the way it was always done. And so it always says, when you look at history, this man had these children, and this man had these children, this man had these children. It's usually just the sons that are listed there. But in Genesis 3.15, it says Jesus will have a mother, no dad. Very odd. Well, it's because it's the first insinuation that Jesus would have an earthly mother but not an earthly father. Joseph was an adopted dad. He was not a biological father. So then as you proceed forward into Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 that I shared with you earlier, the virgin will be with child, it says. So 700 years before the birth of Jesus predates mythology. Predates it. So in addition to that, the concepts of pagan mythology are just that. Their mythology, and they accept it as that. Like if you go to Greece today, you'll see that there's still temples and monuments to Zeus 
and to various gods and goddesses, like Athena, the, the, the goddess that uh, the city of Athens was named after. I don't know about the city of Athens here in Ohio, but, uh, but the one over there, certainly. And no one actually thought that these people really lived, that these gods or goddesses really lived. I mean, it, it's like, it, it'd be like Wolverine or Spider-Man to them, really. I mean, it's, you know, they're sort of imaginary beings, they're interesting stories, and people build monuments to them and they call them temples. We call them theaters. Right? But no one ever thought it was real. I mean, like, kids weren't growing up going, Mom, where's the guy who does the web slinging? Like, where's, I mean, where's Athens? You know, where's Athena live? Or where does, you know, it's, it's a mythological thing. We, we know that Spider-Man isn't real. Well, most of us do, right? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Sorry for anyone that maybe thought he wasn't. Yeah. We know Superman isn't real. We know Wolverine isn't real. We, you know, they knew that Zeus wasn't real. They knew Athena wasn't real. These were just essentially superheroes of their day. It's a reason why they call it mythology. And the story of Jesus is not, a, is not, not that a mythical superhero came into the world. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, the reason what makes it so interesting is that uh, you know, this was actually someone who was born of a virgin. It's a historical fact that predates anything. It has eyewitness testimony according to what Luke has shown us here. The story of Jesus' virgin birth is very different from pagan mythology, and it predates pagan mythology. So if anything, the pagans stole their ideas from the Bible. We didn't steal anything about the concept of a virgin birth from pagan mythology. It's just false. It's false teaching if anyone suggests that to you. Number four, did Jesus cease to be God when he became man? That's something that, you know, the question is, when Jesus came into human history, like, okay, I, I believe that God became man. But when he was here, when the Son of God became man, the man Jesus Christ, did he cease to be God? No, he did not. It says, I mean, and the reason why we know that is because Jesus himself says repeatedly, I am God. The one who you are speaking to, he says to the woman at the well, is he. I am him. Je you know, one of the reasons they put Jesus to death was, and here's the quote, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. That's what they said, the religious leaders in that day. Jesus was put to death because he emphatically, repeatedly, concisely, clearly, and unapologetically said, I am the only God. There is only one way to him, and that is through me. And so they killed him. And additionally, Jesus does what only God can do. He forgives sin. There's an occurrence in Mark where a man is told by Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And all the religious leaders standing around, they're bewildered. Their concept, their concept is right because they say, you know, we sin against God and God only. Only God can forgive sin. That's correct. Where they get it wrong is asking, so what business does Jesus have in forgiving sin? Well, the answer then is he's God. He's the one that we've sinned against. And so he's the God that can forgive sin. That's how Jesus can say to another man, your sins are forgiven. And he does all kinds of other things too, even while he was here, like miracles and commanding creation to obey him. And it does. Jesus was fully God while he was alive here on the earth. St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers says it this way, that Jesus didn't lose his divinity. He added to it humanity. That's what happened. God came to earth and added to his divinity, humanity. Jesus is not God minus, he's God plus. Amen. <laughs> That's who he is. Number five, is Jesus God or man? Which one is he? Like we feel like we have to choose because we can't conceive of both, right? This is usually where a lot of people get hung up. There are lots of debates around this, right? What do you think? Is Jesus God or is he man? Yes, 
<laughs> he's the God-man. He's both. He's God become man. So he's the God-man. Now here's the way it works in culture, in Christian culture and just in culture in general. So in liberal culture, you know, a lot of liberal Christianity, which I would consider to be not Christianity at all, because here's what it says. They, they look at Jesus and they emphasize the man part. They'll say he's a good teacher, good leader, helped the poor, looked after the widow and the orphan, really good guy, kind of like Gandhi or Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa kind of person, an amazing life example. I mean, as close to God as anyone can be. But is he God? No. Did he live without sin? I don't think he probably did. Did he die on a cross as a substitute for our sin? Nah, I don't know about that. Did he resurrect from death? I don't believe that either. He was just a really great guy, one of the greatest guys who ever lived. And they deny his divinity. They reduce Jesus to just a really great guy, something that Jesus himself refuses to accept because he repeatedly says that he's God. Now, on the other side of that pendulum, you have the fundamentalists, which are your really hardcore Christian types in sometimes the wrong way. So they emphatically emphasize the divinity of Jesus so much that his humanity is almost lost. So that, that they, you know, so that when they say, hey, well, you know, someone says Jesus was tempted, they'll say, well, not really, because, you know, yeah, it, you know, he was God. And they say, well, he was suffering. Yeah, but not totally, because he was God. When, you know, like when he, was, when he was crying outside of Lazarus's tomb after Lazarus had died. Well, you know, you know he, he knows what's going to happen, and so he's not really that upset. He was just kind of, you know, putting that on for people to see. You know, and, and you know, if he's, you know, suffering, and he's, 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 getting beaten and he's, you know, he's, he's, he's sweating drops of blood because of his stress. And they, they, they'll say things like, well, I mean, it hurts, but not totally because he's God. And it's like they paint a picture of Jesus as Clark Kent, right? Like on the outside, he's this humble Galilean peasant, but underneath we know like he's got that, red, that leotard with the red S on, you know, so he doesn't really feel pain. He's indestructible. And so, he, you know, during the day he walks around as this mild mannered peasant, but he doesn't really suffer because he's God. He's super God. And here's the thing. Both are true. Both can be true, and both are fully true. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is God who suffers and is tempted. 1,500 years ago, Christians debated about this. I mean, this is nothing new. But what happened in the Council of uh, Chalcedon in, in 450 AD, 451 AD, was all these church leaders get together, and, and they, these theologians, Bible teachers, pastors, they all were debating over this very issue. And they articulated the Chalcedonian Creed and the way that they came up to explain it, you know, this ideology of Jesus being the God-man. They, the, they called it the hypostatic union. And that is Jesus is one person, two natures, fully God, fully man. And they have to come up with those kinds of things in our, in our doctrines because it's hard to conceive of these things. But that's what we believe. All Christians believe that. And I say all Christians, Catholics, Protestant, Orthodox Christians, all believe that. So Jesus is not God or man. He became, he's God who became man. He's the God man. So, all right, two really quick ones. This is, a, this is a big question. Did God have intimate relations with Mary? If, if you have Mormon friends, and I have Mormon friends, this is what they believe. That God the Father is a flesh and blood physical being who had actual, came down and had actual intimate relations with the teenage girl Mary and impregnated her through those relations. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, the angel Gabriel said it will be a miracle. He said it'll be a miracle. 
and the Holy Spirit, not God the Father, the Holy Spirit, Mary, will allow you to conceive. And so what they tend to do is they, they tend to miss the, the subtlety here of literary form. There's something in, in literary form called uh, anthropomorphism, and it happens in the scriptures a lot. John Calvin calls it baby talk, anthropomorphism. It's saying something in a way that helps us to understand something that we can't understand otherwise. And the issue here is that God knows that you know, concepts are hard for us. These kinds of concepts are really hard for us. They're tough. And you know, that's because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We don't always have the brain power to conceive of everything that God does or says or thinks. He speaks then in languages that we can understand and we can compute in our minds and we can see in our, in our mind's eye and we can understand. And he has to do it like we're little children. So, for example, when the Bible says that God sees with his eyes and reaches out with his arm, it doesn't mean that God has a physical body. I mean, Jesus comes as a man, but God the Father does not have a physical body. In John 4, Jesus says that Father God, God the Father, is spirit. He is spirit. That's why we worship in spirit and in truth. The Bible says elsewhere that God is not a man. And so they miss the subtlety of this language. And they'll say, well, it says he has an eye. It says he has an arm. Well, yeah, but it also says at one point God gathers his children under himself like a hen gathers her chicks under his wings. God's not a chicken either. And so we can't be that literal about it. It's literally creativity. It's, it's literary creativity. So that's, you know, God uses this anthropomorphic language to give us an understanding of who he is. And, and the Mormons miss that. They miss it. They'll say, well, God the Father is a physical flesh and blood being who had intimate relationships with Mary and impregnated her. And yet she says repeatedly she's a virgin. And Joseph, this godly, honorable man, has been waiting to have, you know, you know, to have any consummation with his wife in marriage. It would have been a horrendous thing to think that God himself violated Mary fornicated with her to give birth to Jesus, dishonoring Joseph. I mean, among heresies, that is a horrible heresy. Number seven, the last one we'll talk about, is the incarnation of Jesus a secondary issue? And what I mean by that is this. Some throughout church history have argued that this should be a secondary issue just because it's so fairy tale like so hard to believe and even in our day there are some well-known uh, pastors and bible teachers i won't tell you their names because they're not good ones not biblical ones um, who have said that this is a secondary issue the virgin birth is a secondary issue no it is primary and, and you need to know that that here at oasis there are Primary, we believe there are primary issues that all Christians need to believe in order to be Christians. And, and we've called those closed-handed issues. Those are things you have to hold in a tight fist and say, this has to be in place. Now, there aren't many of those. The problem in the church is a lot of people put a lot of things in the closed hand that don't belong there. But there certainly are some, and this is one of them. And then there are also open-handed issues, which are a lot of things that we can discuss and debate about, but we don't need to be divided over. And that's really, honestly, where most things fit. But the issue of the virgin birth goes in the closed hand. And some say, well, why? What do we lose, right? I mean, maybe Jesus' mom wasn't a virgin. What's the big deal, right? Well, number one, it means the Bible's not true. 
<laughs> if that's the case, it means the Bible, because the Bible keeps saying that a virgin will be with child. It prophesies it. Gabriel says that Mary was a virgin. Mary says that she was a virgin. The Bible then is not true if she wasn't. That's the big deal. And number two, it would mean that scripture is unfulfilled. Basically, we're still waiting for a virgin to give birth. Because the Bible says a virgin's going to give birth. So if, she, if Mary wasn't the one, you know, we're still waiting for a virgin to give birth in this little town of Bethlehem that the, that the scripture prophesies about. And that means also that our sins aren't really forgiven until that happens. Number three, it means Jesus' mother is, liar, is a liar. She's deceiving. She's deceiving everyone. And she's a tramp for real. If she's not really a virgin, I mean, if she, that means that she was running around on Joseph. She was messing around with Joseph and she concocted this crazy idea that now billions of people actually believe and call themselves Christians and celebrate during Christmas. It means we should get rid of all of this. And the number four is this. It would mean that Jesus is just a normal guy. He's not Emmanuel, God with us in the fulfillment of scripture. Instead, it's just these two teenage kids messing around, one getting pregnant and then creating a crazy story out of it. This virgin birth changes everything. It changes everything. And when you believe it, it changes you, as Larry King said. It changes your worship, which is what we'll talk about more next week. But I wanted to spend significant time today, and actually next week will probably be a lot shorter, to just to confess. But I want to spend significant time today talking about the implications of Jesus' birth into the world that he created, born of a virgin, in the prophesied town of Bethlehem, just so that we can meditate on the full impact of what this Christmas season is about. I mean, we're entering the Christmas season, and we'll continue it next week. We'll just stay right here next week. My hope and my prayer is that Christmas, through this study, that Christmas will be even more real to you than ever before that this true story of Christmas will ever transform your experience of Christmas and that this Christmas might be different than all others and all of your future Christmases will be different than all others. Let's pray. Well, God, I pray for us as a people. I pray for those who don't know you. People may have known religion most of their lives. They may have known things like morality. They may know some kind of spirituality, but not Jesus. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would, would open their understanding that this history of the virgin birth would now be commingled with theology, a better understanding of you, and that it would result in them a changed life a renewed experience of this wonderful season that we know as Christmas. We've heard the story of the virgin birth hundreds of times, but maybe it's not fully worked itself out in a worshipful life. So today, God, by your grace, may it begin to accomplish its intended purpose in us. And Jesus, as we take communion, as we take this song to take time to consider where we are with you, and then we get up from our chairs and go and take communion, we remember the incarnation, broken body, blood shed. We remember your humiliation that you suffered, your substitution that you gave for us. And we say thank you. That's all we've got, <laughs> but we say thank you. And for that and that work that you did on our behalf, 
We praise you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.